Does it work better now? Okay. I just realized I forgot to do that. I cannot believe I forgot that. First time in 112 years. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes it feels that way. Um, we are coming to the conclusion of a series that we began back the first week in September talking about the one another's of Scripture. Uh, and we started this, if you weren't with us that first week uh, in September, we started this by talking about the passage that it, that's in Scripture that says this, when Jesus was asked about what was the most important, uh, the most important uh, commandment, He said the most important commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He kind of put two commandments together. And when you look at it, really what it is is this. He was saying there's nothing more important than relationships. Relationship with God, a relationship with people. That's the most important things that we can do. And so we've been talking about uh, some of the 58 one another's that were found in the New Testament over the last several weeks. We didn't have time to cover all 58 of them, of course. But we covered about, this. today will be number nine. And uh, as we talked about them, we talked about uh, some of the things the Bible talks about, the one another's of Scripture. Love one another. We talked about that one week. We talked about we belong to one another, uh, about what it means to submit to one another. Uh, Chris talked about the, the passage that talks about uh, comforting one another regarding the resurrection, about how knowing that the resurrection is going to happen gives us comfort. Uh, Dan talked about a passage that's uh, important for us to understand how to forgive one another. And then the last couple of weeks I've talked about how we can share one another's burdens, and then last week about how we can accept one another just as Christ accepted you. And today we come to the, the end of this series. I could have continued it on, but the end of the series. And today we're going to talk about a verse that's kind of interesting, and it can be uh, taken the wrong way. And this is in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. It says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Spur one another on. Spur doesn't sound like a good word, does it? You know, the only thing I know about spurs is that they're use them on you use them on your boots to and when you ride a horse. Is that what the spur is? You know, the, those of you who are horse people, I don't have a clue. I'm about as far from a horse people as a person as can be. But anyway, spurs actually, and and I don't think they probably feel good to the horse. You know, because what they do is they actually you kind of dig them into their sides and it makes them go. So you know, they know if I'm gonna I'm going to get rid of this pain that i got to go. And so that's kind of the picture that I have in mind when I saw that word spur one another on. And so we're going to talk about what that means. What does it mean and what does it not mean? Now, next week we're going to go, and I'm going to preface this, next week we're going to go start a three-week series into a little New Testament book called, a little New Testament letter called Titus. And Titus only has three chapters, and we're going to cover a chapter a week, not necessarily everything in Titus. So if you want to kind of read ahead... Still, go ahead and read chapter 1 of Titus for next week. That's what I'm going to be talking about next week. Then the following week, Chris will be doing chapter 2, and then I'm coming back and doing chapter 3 of Titus the following week. And and has a lot of things to do with where we are as, uh, in our culture, where we are as a church, and some other things over the next uh, several weeks. But let's go back to where we are. Let's talk about what does it mean to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. One of the things that's always important for us to understand is this, is that if we're going to comprehend or understand or translate the verse, a verse of Scripture, this is one verse, verse 24 of Hebrews chapter 10, you have to understand it in the context of where it is. You need to understand the verses that are before it and the verses that come after it because they set the stage for what, for what the writer, and I will refer to this as the writer of Hebrews. No one knows really who wrote Hebrews. 
It's the one book that's a mystery in the New Testament. Uh, the, the book itself does not tell us who wrote it. Uh, there's all kind of uh, commentators. I read like five commentators this week on the book of Hebrews, and everyone, none of them would say, you know, we think it might be this, it might be this, you know. And nobody will say, because it doesn't give us any context. It doesn't say like most of the books do. Always said, uh, you know, this is Paul, or, or this is Luke, or who, whatever. Uh, this doesn't say that. So, we don't know. So, as I refer to this, I'm not going to refer to any person saying this, because it's just the writer of Hebrews. But the writer of Hebrews, in the verses, starting with verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 19 through 25, the verses just prior to this verse 24, says this. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And then he goes to the verse that we're looking at today, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And then verse 25, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, prior to this verse, verse 24, what it is, if you'll notice in the Scripture, you can have, if you have your Scripture open there, it's up on the screen as well, you notice several spiritual blessings prior to talking about spurring one another on that, that the writer of Hebrews uh, uh, shares with us. Uh, several things that, that come to us from, from Jesus Christ. He says, uh, number one, he says, we have access to the Father through Jesus Christ. That's a good news. Uh, because, once again, the, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a Jewish audience. We can know that because he makes so many more Old Testament references in the book of Hebrews than in any book of the New Testament by far. And so, he, he understands that the people that he's talking to, that lets us know, knows the Scriptures. They know the Old Testament. And that was the writings that the Hebrews knew, that the, that the uh, Jewish people knew as well. And one of the things they thought was the only way to get to God, the Hebrews thought, and the Jewish people thought, was through sacrifice. But they understood that didn't work. And so, they, the writer here of Hebrews says this, that we have access to the Father through Jesus Christ. Secondly, he says, and this is once again an understanding from the Jewish mindset, we have a great high priest. And, and, and that's important because in that day, the, the high priest, what's, what's the role of the high priest in the Jewish culture? The high priest was the one guy that once a year had direct access to the place called the Holy of Holies, the place that they believed that God dwelt in the tabernacle. He was the only person that could go there. And so they believed that, you know, this is this one guy that could get close to God. But what he's talking to us here, he says, we have a great high priest that guarantees us closeness to God. Because Jesus now is our great high priest, not the guy that goes into the Holy of Holies, but Jesus and then he says this, because of that we have full assurance, no doubts about, our, about, our, about what God has done for us. We can be sure that we have um, a, a relationship with God because of what Jesus has done. And, and, and the thirdly, he, or fourth I guess, he says we have a clean heart and a clean conscience. It's, we have a clean, maybe a better term is a cleansed conscience because of what he's done for us. Not what we have done, but what he's done for us. He also says in these verses we have hope. And then he says also, we have a faithful God. He will not let us down. He will come through for us when we need him most. Now, we see that in the text prior to this passage here in uh, uh, verse 24 about spurring one another on. 
Now, the verses that follow, though, also tell us something about the context, and we'll look at that uh, as well. The context of the verses uh, following verse 24 and 25 is hugely important. Verses 26 through 31 says this, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Verse 29, how much more severely do you think someone who deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? Then verse 30, for we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. And then it concludes this passage, this little section here, by saying this. It is a dreadful, or some of you may have a different translation, terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now that doesn't sound like fun, does it? That whole passage there, basically it's saying this. uh, Terrifying is probably the best uh, uh, um, translation of that word by the Hebrew writer. The major thing that strikes us here, it strikes me when I read this, is the seriousness of this matter. While we are confident the verses prior to verse 24, while we are confident of access to the Father through what Jesus Christ has done for us upon the cross, and know that He can cleanse our consciousness, we are still shaking in our boots when we approach God. God is not our best bud. He's not just a good guy. God is holy and separate from us. And that's what the writer here is trying to talk about. Um, just being knowing that we're securing Christ doesn't make us relax in a sense in our, in our quest for holiness in our own lives. Um, and so the thing is, is that uh, it's described in Revelation chapter 1 verse 17. It, it talks about how we as believers, when we actually get to heaven, you know, we think we'll go, woo! That's not what it says we'll do. Because when we see God and we understand him in his fullness, this is what it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's our response to a holy God. He's to be taken seriously. And so that's what the the writer of Hebrews is talking about. The seriousness of this and something that it's not to be, God's not to be trifled with. And we should take the seriousness into our interactions with others as well. Relationships like this are not an optional thing for Christians. We've been talking about the importance of relationships. There's nothing more important than relationships. And that's why there's 58 verses in the New Testament that talks about the one another, how we interact with one another. It's probably one of the most talked about things in all the New Testament is our interactions with other people and the importance of how how we interact with other people. Because the, these interactions, these relationships are at the very core uh, of it. And so, how, this, so this, this morning, this verse, verse 24 of Hebrews 10, um, is another word that sometimes we don't want to deal with because we think we're just supposed to like pat each other on the back and say, good job, honey. But we're never to spur one another on. Uh, yesterday, uh, I... Uh, did something I haven't done in a while. Nothing bad. Okay, this one let you know. I uh, I, I realized one of the things that uh, when you when I talked recently to a counselor, I was he was telling me about. He said one of the things you need to do is make sure you're getting plenty of exercise and uh, and plenty of uh, f- uh, focus on on things that 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 fill you up. 
okay? And then Tracy Daniel told me the other day, he, he, he and I meet uh, weekly, and he, he spurs me on. And uh, he ta- keeps telling me, he said, Bill, you should, there's, here's the things you should do. He doesn't say these are optional. He says these are the things you need to do. And Tracy, I am doing some of those things, okay? Okay. And, and you'll, you'll be glad to know that yesterday, one of the things he had spurred me on to do is get back to exercising more vigorously. I was doing some. But what I used to do and what I've been doing recently is like not even on the same page. So yesterday, one of my good friends who I play tennis with, um, I called him and I said, hey, can we play tennis? It's a beautiful day. 70, it was 70 some degrees. And it's almost November. What's going on here? You know, so I went out and, and he, and we went out and we played tennis. And when I play tennis with him, he brings this big giant basket of balls and he hits them and he makes me run all over the court. And I was like, I'm not, you know, and he's 10 years younger than I am, so he's not young, but he can run all day long. It doesn't bother him. And so when we would finish hitting the basket of balls, I was getting ready to go pick them up. He said, no, 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 no. While I pick up the balls, you run. And so while I'm running, I'm at the Metamore tennis courts, nobody else is up there. I'm running up and back, up and back, up and back while he's picking up 75 tennis balls. And then he comes, okay, we're done. Let's, let's start playing again. We're not done. We're just... Taking up, and my pause, my break was running. <laughs> and then when we finished, he's going, How do you feel? I said, I feel like, and I'm not going to use the word, but the thing is, is I feel horrible. But I know, but I feel good too, okay? He said, We just need to do this more often. I said, Okay, let's do it. He said, How about every week on Friday at 11 o'clock, unless Jesus comes, we're going to do this. And I said, I really need that. He said, I want to help you. Because I want to see you fit and feel better about stuff. And I understand that physical activity is one of those things. So thanks for spurring me on, Tracy. And and my my other friend, he's going to start meeting with me and I'm going to start doing it. As much, I love playing tennis. That's one of the the things. I played tennis for 25 years and hadn't done much recently. So... I simply say that that's, so my friend uh, every Friday is going to be spurring me on by making me do things I don't want to do, even though I know they're good for me. And so when you look at this word, this, 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 this term, this key word here in this verse, the word spur on, the Greek word is and it's an interesting word. It's, it's uh, the Greek kind of uh, translated into English is paroxymus. And it's in the NIV translation, it's called, it says it's, it's translated spur on. In the King James Version, it's, it's called, it uses the terms provoke. Provoke, that's what it's, how it's used. And it's only used two times here in the New Testament, in Hebrews 10 and in Acts 15 to 39. And, and in Acts 15 39, it's translated as an irritation, a sharp disagreement. <laughs> and so it says we're to do that to other people. Another piece of information that helps us to understand what this word means, this Greek word paroxymus, it's transliterated, which means it's, it's actually the English word. It's in the English dictionary. You don't see that word, but it's an English word, and the word is paroxysm. And that word means, according to Webster, a sudden violent outburst, a fit of violent action or emotion, and medically, a severe attack or increase in the violence of a disease. Now, if you don't get the idea already, this is not a nice word. Okay, spur on is not like, come on. I, I understand this, this, this term paroxysm because I, I had a paroxysm about a year ago. 
You're going, really? Yeah. I was sitting at my kitchen table on a Friday with my laptop doing bills. And all of a sudden, I had this incredibly intense, sharp pain right there. And it was so bad that it, will, it, it never quit. It just kept getting worse and worse. And, and my wife was subbing at school that day, and she got home, and she's going, what's wrong with you? I was laying over on the couch just writhing and pain. and doing, I, said, I don't know what's wrong with me. Something's wrong with me. I don't know what the deal is. See, I had this severe attack, this violent outburst of pain and agony. I had a paroxysm. And so what did I do about it? I said, no big deal. I must go sit here until it subsides. No, 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 no. My wife got me in the car, took me to the emergency room over at Proctor, got in there in about 10 minutes. If you need something done real fast, that's a place to go, okay? Because there's nobody there. (laughs) (laughs) And I got in there, and they did a CAT scan, and they gave me some, I call it happy juice. Felt really good within about five minutes. I think it was morphine is what it was. And and they discovered I had had a kidney stone. Oh, my gosh. That's a, that's a paroxysm, okay? A violent outburst of pain and agony. If you've ever been there, anybody ever been there? Any kidney stone people here to admit it? Oh, no. I will tell you, you I, can feel your, I can feel your pain. I know what it's like. There's no, the only thing that's close to it I understand is having a baby. And I'm never going to have one of those. So the deal is, and I've had women that tell me they've had babies and kidney stones that it's it's just as intense, but different. So anyway, I say that. So that was, that was my paroxysm. It, it's, and what did it do? It spurred me on, this paroxysm, this intense pain, spurred me on to, in a real sense, to go to the hospital to get something done about it, to change something. And after I got there, after, after the doctor talked to me, he, uh, you know, he said, this is how you, you avoid future adventures with these little stones. What you do is you do, and he told me some things to do, and I've been doing those because I never want to have one another one of those things if I can help it. And it spurred me to change some things. So, see, the idea here of the writer of Hebrews, see what he's telling us to do? This is an intense word for an intense context. And he's telling us that we need to encourage, not just encourage, but we need to spur on people to do the things of God because we don't want to mess around with God. Because God's not somebody to be messed around with. Now, there's two tempering ideals in here as well, though, because it says this, and uh, two ideas that, that help us to understand how to do this. Uh, the strength of the concept of, temp, of, of spurring one another on is tempered by these two ideas. First, he says, let us consider. That's what it says in the verse there. Let us consider. What does that mean? Well, that means this. It, let us consider about how we go about accomplishing the spurring on. I mean, some people love to spur people on. Some people have the gift of spurring people on. We hate those people. They're, we're, we, you know what you call them? Your brother-in-law. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe somebody else in your family. But people who, who, who just like to irritate you, you know, but it's not for the purpose of what this spurring on is about. Because this spurring on, is we gotta, it means we have to know the person. It requires that we understand our brother and sister in Christ, their needs, their situation, how, best to resp- how they best respond to the Lord. There's no cookie-cutter way of spurring on people. 
See, we're out to, to blow into someone's life and drop a paroxysm on them and, and, and expect them to respond. Those people respond in different ways. It means we have to consider how it would be best to spur the person on that we know. And so we can only do this with people we know. The second tempering idea is the result we expect out of our actions. He said, let us consider how to spur one another on, but what's the result of our actions? We will do it toward love and good works. The spurring on is supposed to change us in a direction of positive change, toward love and good works. I have never seen a person inspired by ranting and raving and screaming. Never. It demotivates people. And these verses present the certainty that our words and actions can make a real difference in the outcome of someone's life when guided by consideration. So what does it look like to spur one another on? Let me give you some, 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 what does it look like in real life? Because we have to understand something. You know, how many of you have read the book by Gary Chapman, The Five Love Languages? Anybody here? Five Love Languages? Read it. It's good. It'll help you to understand there's a lot of different ways that people respond. Everybody has their love language. Every time I, I know people that read it because they always tell me what their love language is. And I'm going like, what am I supposed to do with that? You know, I'm not your spouse. <laughs> no, I understand why they say that. But the reality is he talks about there's different ways of doing that. It, it, and it's the same way with spurring one another. What motivates you might demotivate me. So the real test is the effect produced by the spurring. And the goal, remember, is this, to promote love and good works. Therefore, we need to figure out and consider what works for the people around us. And we need to extend grace with others who attempt to put this verse into practice in our lives. Um, the very fact that someone cares enough to, spur, to want to spur you on it should encourage you somewhat because it means they care. Okay, so examples. Let me give you some examples of what it means to spur people on. Now, these are very non-specific, but number one, one way to spur, uh, spur one another on is, is to pray specifically, not generally, specifically for another's need, struggle, or weakness, and then let them know that you're doing so. Which also sets you up to ask for an update about how they're doing. In a sense, what you're doing by praying specifically for someone, and then telling them you're doing so, and then doing an update helps them to become accountable for the change that needs to be made in their life. That's a simple way of spurring one another on. A second thing is to, is to share a scripture that you believe will be relevant to their life. Now, you've got to pray about this because some people, I've shared scripture with people before and say, but Pastor Bill, I think this is the greatest scripture ever or whatever. And I'm going like, are you talking to me? Or are you talking to people in general? You know, what's the deal? Make sure, and from time to time, have you ever done this where you, you, some scripture you're praying and you're praying about somebody and you read a scripture and you go like, oh, that would be so helpful to them? That's the ones you want to pass along toward, to somebody else, to encourage them, because you're giving them guidance from God's word. Another way to spur one another on is when someone shares a burden or struggle or sin with you, remember to ask them about that consistently. Once they share something with you and they're a friend of yours, don't just drop it and say, well, I'll pray about it. That's the last time they hear about it. Write it down. Pray about it daily and then ask them about how it's going. Number four, don't be afraid to, to, to give someone a bold challenge. 
Don't be afraid to give someone a bold challenge. One of the things so often we're afraid to do is to simply is to speak into other people's lives. And we see them falling off a cliff or something, or we see them doing things that's harmful to them and to others. And what we do is we sit back and we wait for them to fall off the cliff. And then we tell them, we told you so. But the reality is sometimes it would help people if you really love them, if you really care for them, to give them a bold challenge. To say to them, this is, this is not working for you, is it? How about trying this? And then finally, just, just another kind of general thing. If you're going to spur people on, just step out and do it. Consider and pray how to do it, but do it. If, if you make a mistake, apologize and learn from it. So many of us are afraid that we're going to break up a relationship when, we're, when, when people need to have us to spur them on. So God is telling us here, the, the writer of Hebrews is telling us that. Now, Chuck Swindoll... Chuck Swindoll, Charles Swindoll, in a, in a book called Growing Deep in the Christian Life, said this. He said, it is impossible, impossible to stimulate someone else to love and good deeds if we're not around them. We cannot encourage if we live our lives in secret caves, pushing people away from us. People out of touch don't encourage others. Encouragement is a face-to-face thing. And my addition is this, it's not a Facebook thing. That is not the place to encourage people to spur them on. That's called cowardice. Face to face. That's what we need to do. So let me conclude with three questions. Three questions that we have today. Three questions that I believe comes out of the context of this and the the series we've been looking at. Number one, the question number one is this. For what do I yearn? For what do I yearn? See, we have a problem Perhaps the focal uh, challenge of life. For our hearts are not always where they should be. Would you agree with that? That your heart is not always where it should be? We yearn for the wrong things in life, things that crowd out God's voice and love for Him. So we've got to ask ourselves daily this thing. For what am I yearning today? To what are my energies and efforts being drawn? To come to God to draw near Him must be done, as the writer of Hebrews says, with a sincere heart. And if we're to draw near to God, our yearnings must be cultivated in the right direction because if they're not, our culture will consume us, siphoning off our energies and our desires. One of the things I've said a thousand times, I'll say it a thousand times more because it's so true, is that if we allow culture to do so, we will be busy doing so many things that we'll never do the right things. And so we have to ask ourselves, for what do I yearn the most? If we desire a relationship with God that's life-changing, we have to desire Him the most. See, such a lifestyle of, of allowing culture to change us also leaves us little place for intimacy, for communication, or for listening to God. You know, one of the things, I was talking to someone in the hall just a while ago, and they asked me about some stuff, and I was talking about, you know, when I go the last few years, um, <clears throat> I have five weeks of vacation because I've been in ministry a long time. And, um, and, and Dan, a, couple, a few weeks ago when he was teaching, said, Bill, Bill's been on vacation. And I corrected him because I said, no, I don't go on vacation anymore. My definition of vacation is going somewhere chilling out and focusing on God and, and just my, my, my spouse. No, all five weeks of my vacation now, 
vacation, is spent traveling to see kids, grandkids, aging parents, name it. You know, that's one of the transitional things that, I'm, that my wife and I are praying about in life. You know, how can we focus our attention better on those things that are important, those relationships, and still have time for ourselves and for God? Because when I go to Virginia to visit with my parents, it's not relaxing. I got aging parents who have a lot of needs. And I got two sisters that live there and, you know, and all this stuff. And so it's 24-7 people coming over and hanging out and talking, 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 talking. When we go to Knoxville, Tennessee to hang out with, with our uh, daughter, her husband, and our two grandkids there, five and seven-year-old boys, one of them has, an, has, a, has a gift. He's a human alarm clock. <laughs> he wakes up every morning at 6 a.m. without a clock. I mean, literally. He like, boom, and he's up. Now, our daughter has trained him to not get in, out of the room and disturb anybody until the clock, the big giant clock over here that has letters on it, says 630. But at 630, you can hear him running through the house, waking everybody up. And so that's the way our day starts when I'm, that's the way it was a few weeks ago. It's the way it's going to be at Christmas for a week prior to Christmas when we go there and visit. It's just the way. So, I mean, and so how do you have a time with God? It's, I'm doing, I'm working with my kids. I'm doing, but no, it's, no, it's not. It's really hard. See, our lifestyle so often, often leaves us with little place for real communication, really little place for listening to God. And sometimes I find myself going weeks. And I think sometimes you may too, being so busy with work and activities and stuff that we never carve out that time for God, that intimacy with God. And I'm the worst of all because I can, I, I can simply say, well, I'm doing, it, I'm doing God's work. Because I'm studying the Bible every day, I'm praying every day, but I'm praying with you or some, you know, something every day. But am I doing it to build my relationship with God? That's what, that's, what, that's what it's important here. So the first thing is this, for what do I yearn? I want more than anything else to yearn for God more than anything else. And I will block time out away from everything else to spend it with him. And I hope that's what you yearn for as well. Second question is this, to what am I committed? To what am I committed The writer of Hebrews once again says this, to hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. It demands a mature response to the obstacles and oppositions that's built into the the whole thing of life because we live in a fallen world. To hold unswervingly demands a choice to be faithful. I I loved our men's group yesterday, Bill, uh, because um, the cool thing about the videos we're doing, we're doing, I can't think what the series is called. Stepping Out, it's a series about guys, so girls, you know, wouldn't like it. But it's... uh, it's stepping out. It's about our, our faithfulness to God. And yesterday was dealing with this whole thing of, of deciding what we're committed to, in a sense. And, and as the video producers talked about it, uh, we have to make a choice to be faithful. And we have to have our hope grounded in the faithfulness of God. Uh, you know, in, in Scripture, in Romans eight thirty one, it says, 
Um, if God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for, all, for us all, how will he not also along with him, uh, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? See, ultimately, I don't have the power to be consistent in my walk with God, in my own power. You don't have the ability or the power just to grunt hard and go, I'm going to be faithful to God no matter what. But this this passage in, in Hebrews tells us this. It says, the good news is, is that God has done it for us through Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, we don't have the resources within ourselves to stay with the goal God has set before us. we got to choose. And so often, we get pulled in so many different directions, we don't have the resolve, and we get tired, and we give up easily. So we have to ask ourselves every day, to what am I committed? And if we don't find ourselves in a place where we can say, God, you know, I'm committed to this, but I find myself falling away, what do we need to do? Just try harder? No, we have to give in to God more. Because he's the one that has the resources to allow us to live the life he wants us to live. That's the problem. We have this American rugged individualism. It's a sham. And then finally, the last question is this. With whom will I walk? And that's what this whole series has been about. With whom will I walk? I I think you understand this, but I'll remind you once again. Our associations in life make a tremendous difference for good or for ill in, in, in our outlook and in our endeavors. Peers can, can wield heavy influence on our actions, and not just with kids, not just with teenagers, but with adults. Peers can wield heavy influence on our actions, our goals, and yes, our perseverance in given tasks and tracks. That's why we need people in our life who love us too much to let us keep going the way we are and to simply be willing to spur us on. A friend is not a friend who simply stands by and lets you do any old stupid thing you do. I think you know that. But the reality is, God says, you know, with whom will I walk? That's what this whole series has been about. The one another's of Scripture is about we, nothing's more important than relationships. Nothing. Our relationship with God, our relationship to people. And if we don't make that our priority in life, if we don't spend the time nurturing those relationships, if we don't spend the time, if we just stay busy, busy, busy all the time, running here, there, all kind of sporting events, all kind of activities, all kind of doing here, doing this, doing everything, and we don't balance our life in, in, in a place where we, we have the time to, to work on those relationships, we'll come to the end of our life and we'll ask ourselves, you know, I wish I'd have done this differently. See, we need others spurring us on toward love and good deeds when we live in a world so bent on self-centeredness and self-gratification. Nothing is more important than relationships. We need each other, and we function best when we're working together. And I hope, if nothing else, over the last nine weeks that we've looked through this, it's only reinforced that idea in your life And Scripture has given you some insight into how these relationships need to look in a real way. Live life with no regrets. And that means looking back and saying, 
I'm glad I did that. I'm glad I said no to that and yes to that. Because if you don't, the world will try to get you in its vice, and it'll try to tell you that you need to try everything. And folks, you cannot do everything. You need to do the best things. And I don't think I need to tell you what they are. Because if God's Spirit's living within you, he's, he's working in your life to direct you toward those things right now. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for what you do in our lives. We thank you that you love us so much that you sent your son to die upon a cross. We thank you for the, for the writer of Hebrews, whoever that may be, Apollos or, or, or Paul or a number of other people that could have been, who shared with us and shared with the Hebrew people of that day a lesson that we need to learn today, that we need to have relationships that are, that are healthy relationships. And healthy relationships aren't those just simply we get together and we have a meal together and then we go home and we don't infect and affect each other's lives. God, people that, are really, that we need to really have in our life as our closest friends need to be people who will not only encourage us and love us and accept us and all the other one another's we've talked about for the last several weeks, but also, God, will spur us on toward love and good works, who won't give up on us no matter what. Thank you, God, that you're that kind of friend for us, that you love us so much that you're willing to do what it took to make a way for us to have a relationship with the Heavenly Father. But you didn't leave it there, God, because you taught us and you encouraged us through your word to live life in a way that's different than the world. Help us, God, now more than anything to learn from your word and to apply it to our lives this week. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.